Welcome back to Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. I have to admit, I haven't been on San Francisco Bay very much lately since the uh, stay-at-home phase of the coronavirus pandemic. I have been up to our boat, which is about 10 minutes drive from, from home across the Golden Gate Bridge, and when I went up today, there were plenty of boats out sailing on the bay. I know there's a debate going as to whether that's the right thing to do or not. Certainly, you can easily socially distance yourself when you're sailing, sailing alone or just with the people you're hunkered down with. But at the same time, there's always the risk when you're out sailing, however small it might be, that uh, you run into trouble and you need help. And I know the Coast Guard has cut back on staffing in order to keep their own personnel safe and sure would not look good to be using vital resources during the pandemic to be rescued on your boat out in the bay. So some people are out there enjoying the very empty San Francisco Bay and some people are staying tied to the dock. I have not yet ventured out on the bay, but that's more a factor of the that our boat is not quite in shape, having just been put in the water to do any sailing these days. But uh, as I said, I am going up to the boat and doing projects, getting the boat ready to go sailing. So I'll cross that bridge when I come to it. I find that just being on the boat is definitely... Um, a psychological escape for me, uh, a way to forget all the craziness and all the news that surrounds the craziness um, and just get some peace of mind. And I hope this podcast also provides something of an escape for you, some positive stories, some enjoyable laughs. So on to today's episode. If you've sailed at all on the bay, you've surely seen sails with pineapples on them, the logo of Pineapple Sails. And my guest today, Cammie Richards, started Pineapple Sails in 1973. The crazy thing is he'd only been sailing a handful of times before he started a sailmaking business. I first became aware of Cammie not through his sails, but through his famous Tide and Currents talk at the Bay Model in Sausalito. It was a fantastic talk, and we discussed that in this interview, but it was really eye-opening, particularly for someone like me who hadn't, at the time, done very much sailing on the Bay. Cammy's known in the region not just for his sails, but for his racing, and he's raced all over San Francisco Bay, but farther afield as well, many times to Hawaii to Mexico, the Great Lakes, Florida, Europe, and elsewhere. And he's started a community sailing center in Alameda. Kimmy and I had this wide-ranging conversation with plenty of laughs in the Pineapple Sales loft in Alameda. And we spoke last month just before the coronavirus had really gotten a foothold here in the U.S. But towards the end of the conversation, he does mention how the disruption is impacting sailmakers. One last thing before we jump into the episode, I want to ask you two quick favors. If you like the show, 
go leave a review in iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. And number two, I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you want to hear more of, what you like, what you don't like. Just drop me a line and say hi. You can do that at outthegatesailing, all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, now, on to the show. Enjoy. My name is Cammie Richards. I'm the founder owner of Pineapple Sales. <clears throat> we are in Alameda at the Pineapple Sales Loft. And we are in a room that's 108 feet by, I don't know, 40 feet, which is the main sailmaking floor. We're close to the Oakland airport, and that's that airplane that you can hear. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, in the building, the sewing machines are all flush mounted in the floor. So basically the project in designing a sailmaking manufacturing business is that you want to not lift up and down the sails because they can be big and heavy. You just want to put the sails on the floor and they go backwards and forwards, left and right, and the people go up and down. So the people walk down into a pit to sit at a sewing machine and the sail moves back and forth. So there are, I don't know, six sewing machines within view from here and there's several more upstairs. <coughs> and uh, we are very, very fortunate in that we bought this piece of property as a vacant lot and we were able to design the factory, you know, starting with beer and a napkin, wow. where all good ideas come from. That's right. Well, it's a magnificent building. And when you say the the um, sewing machines are in the floor, the one we're sitting next to looks more like a gun turret <laughs> than a little uh, sewing machine <clears throat> hole. Uh, it can yeah. have room for about two or three people in there. <laughs> <clears throat> the sewing machine that you're referring to is... Uh, uh, what do I want to say? Part of being good is being lucky. Ah. This sewing machine is a monster sewing machine. It is used to make sales, capable of making sales far bigger than what we normally do. But we got it from the Oracle America's Cup program. Oh. And it wasn't all that long ago when the America's Cup program built really big sales. <clears throat> and then they switched over to wings, mm -hmm. which is to say they don't really need sale makers at all. And in my opinion, the reason those boats have jibs on them is because sailmakers were whining <laughs> that they needed to be able to play in the America's Cup because it's a sailboat race. Um, when the catamarans were racing here in the bay, one of the boats had a jib halyard failure. They didn't use the jib all day, and they still won the race they were in with just a wing. Wow. So I, I don't... A little bit of a vestigial uh, <laughs> With the, the, organ well the it turns out that the wing shapes are so good and so controllable that they're better than soft sails they huh. really are huh. you know and, and i and uh i'm surprised to hear a sailmaker say if, that. if now a truth you know yeah the um many years ago when uh, the dennis connor was sailing uh medium-sized multi-hull against the big Kiwi Challenger. He had, <laughs> I'm gonna get in trouble for this, no, I won't, it's the truth. Um, Bert Rattan out in the desert built the wing for Dennis Connor. Okay. Okay, and it was a very fancy articulating wing built out of carbon and all this fancy stuff. And uh, the boat shows here used to be at Moscone Center, and some very smart person said, well, let's invite 
Mr. Rutan up to give a talk about his America's Cup experience. And he had a slideshow, and he's a, a, a ground-level engineer, and he can explain things in very fundamental basis, but when he turns around and builds something, it's like space-age, terrifically yeah. good stuff. He complained during the talk that somebody went and put a sail in front of his main, his, his wing. His wing, yeah. And he was very distressed at that. And, and he said, why didn't they call me? I mean, if there's a problem, don't tell me what the solution is. Tell me what the problem is. And I'll bet I can solve your problem. But as a matter of fact, they went to famous San Diego sailmaker, and they put a jib in front of the wing. And Mr. Tan was very upset <laughs> because it was a dumb solution. And the last question to him was, <clears throat> would you like to do more America's Cup work? And he said, if they pay me for the last work that I did, I'd be happy to do more work for the <laughs> America's Cup. Still so waiting. <laughs> welcome to the America's Cup. <laughs> anyway. Well, let's back up a little bit. Yes. You started pineapple sales in 1973. Three. 46 years ago. And this is your third location, correct? Yes, correct. How did you get into sailmaking? Well, let's, let's, go, let's back up further than that. How did you get into sailing? Yeah. Same answer for the, those two questions. Okay. <clears throat> I grew up in San Diego, spent a lot of time surfing, came up to the Bay Area to go to school at Berkeley. I majored in geophysics at Cal, and part of that was a whole lot of computer science work. Uh. Part of going to college is finding ways to get late for your exams. <laughs> My solution to that was playing a whole lot of volleyball. And in the olden days, there was a volleyball court on Bancroft, and I was playing volleyball with an elderly gentleman whose name was George Pitt. He was probably 50. I'm now 71 or 2. And we were playing volleyball. We were playing very, very well together, and we had a lot of fun. And he asked me if I needed a job, and I'm remembering my parents saying, if you could help pay for your education, that would be good. So I said, sure. Uh, my mom thinks I need a job. So I said, we should come up and... To, for a job interview, but bring your shorts and your shoes. And he was the computer director at the Space Sciences Lab at UC Berkeley. Wow. Space Sciences Lab is up above Lawrence Hall, right at the very, very top of the hill. At that time, there wasn't enough space, and the computer department was operating out of two or three mobile trailers. So I walked into the trailer asking for George Pitt, and everybody said, oh, we'll find him. He's around here somewhere. But under every single desk was a mesh bag with volleyballs and shorts and gym clothes. And every single person that worked for George was a good volleyball player. Wow. And on top of the roof of the Space Sciences Lab is a volleyball court. And at lunch, we would all go up there and play volleyball. So I got a job. You weren't the first he recruited from <laughs> no, the court. <laughs> and no, and I was not the best either. Um, so I got a job at Space Sciences. Uh, I, uh, the connection was volleyball. Uh -huh. I was capable of doing what they needed me to do. It was dumb old data processing for the Apollo missions. Um, and uh, so that got me in the door. And then the last Apollo mission comes back, and the American public decided they'd had plenty of fun spending that much money on going to the moon and back. So the program got axed, and in axing the program, they laid off in reverse order, you know, half the people they'd hired. And myself and Frank Harvey and Tom Cox and all the, my classmates 
<clears throat> that were working there were whacked. And I was, I'm okay, I'm very okay with being punished because you screwed up. Mm-hmm. But I have a lot of trouble with essentially losing your job because somebody else didn't plan well. And when you're a young college kid and there's a bad planning in terms of funding, you know, that, that was very upsetting to me. Uh, the lab director was a, a very wonderful gentleman named Kinsey Anderson, and I went and whined and barked and complained to him for 20 minutes, a lot more time than I deserved because he couldn't change the answer. Sure. And he said, well, you know, I'll bet when you grow up, you're going to be self-employed. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I told him was, don't, when you get a job, don't call me. I can't work if I don't know that I've got a job. Right. I mean, I think it's great if you can just hire people and fire them when, when you need them. But, I mean, if, if I had car payments to make, I'd have been doomed. That uncertainty for yeah, you. Uncertainty, was, yeah, uncertainty. Just terrible. So, so he is the guy that planted the seed that said you don't need to work for Rockwell or NASA or anybody. You can just do whatever you want. Yeah. And so then I was delightfully unemployed with a little bit of, you know, unemployment insurance. And I was snow skiing and mountain climbing and racing bicycles until the money ran out. And then started getting letters from my folks saying, you know, we bought a lot of books and sent you to a pretty nice school. You think you could do something? (laughs) (laughs) And so... uh, But I didn't hear sailing in that list. Well, no, there, there was no sailing in there yet. A friend of mine that was at Stanford at the time, he was getting the similar letters from his folks. Okay. So the question is, gee, what do you want to do? We should do something. Yeah. And we, perfectly sexist thing, we started looking at all the things that boys like to do, mm-hmm. that we like to do. Sure. We looked carefully at building racing bicycle frames. We looked at building mountaineering equipment. I was already making my own sleeping bags and tents for going into the Sierras. It turns out <clears throat> at that time you could buy a really good industrial sewing machine for $600, and for $600 you could buy one sleeping bag and one tent. But if you had a sewing machine, you can make sleeping bags, you can make tents. That's fantastic. So I started sewing because I was a cheap college kid with no money. I wouldn't call it that we did a, a, you know, any real fancy analysis, but it was clear that if we went into mountaineering equipment, 40 years later, as a business owner, you'd be calling on Sears Roebuck and Company in Montgomery Wards trying to sell 5,000 sleeping bags in blue and 7,000 sleeping bags in gray. And you're not going to be developing sleeping bags. You're not going to be developing. You're going to be doing ownership jobs. And those jobs are very unappealing to me. I don't pretend to be a salesman. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't pretend at all to be a good salesman. If you, uh, I work very hard at designing a very, very good product. I work very hard at making it a quality product. And if it interests you, we'll sell you one. And if it doesn't interest you, I'm not going to argue. You know, it turns out that most people who want to argue about the price are going to be upset no matter what you build. And I can look them in the eye and say, you know, I'd rather have you be pissed off at the sale maker down the street and not even remember who I am. I'm okay with that. So more of a niche product really serving the customer who comes <clears throat> to you. From the very first day until today, I'll bet we meet 99.5% of every single person that we sell a sale to. Hmm. 
We just sold some Express 37 sails back to Long Island Sound, <clears throat> but we have an Express 37 that we race all the time, and the guy from Long Island said, you know, I need to learn about this boat. Can I fly out there and sail with you? So he's come out twice in the past and done some racing on Golden Moon. So tell me how you got from... I haven't answered your question yet. Yeah, have yeah, I? no. <coughs> we, eventually, <laughs> we eventually decided that making sales would be far more fun, mostly because you get to meet the people that you do business oh. with. At this point, had you been sailing? No. <laughs> I, mean, I love the I love the boldness of I, this. I had, uh, I, had, I had probably sailed 10 times uh, through being age zero and leaving San Diego to come up here to go to school. Okay. Some of that was on a K-38. Uh, that's a prerequisite for, just for, living, for growing that's up exactly, in San Diego. That's, a, that's right. That's right. You're not in San Diego if you don't do that. Um, basically, when we narrowed our field of endeavor down to just one job, we're going to make sales, then, okay, I guess... This is another thing that you have to get good at. Mm-hmm. You'd mentioned sort of like courage in there. Yeah. And I, I have a lament about the California taxpayer, but some people would disagree. Let's pick 1972. The California taxpayers' very high priority was to educate California youth. Mm-hmm. How long was I at Cal? I was at Cal for a lot of years, a lot more than four years. I got out of Cal with zero debt. Wow. If you're fortunate enough to get into a place like Berkeley, I think you've made a great mistake if you get out in four years. Because all that means is you've been tunneling down on the one and only thing that you think you're going to want to do. Right? I mean, you can study celestial navigation at NROTC at Berkeley. You can take California history classes that still make me almost cry when you compare what Alameda looks like now compared to what it looked like in, let's say, 1800. Now, you said you, you graduated with a major in geophysics. I didn't graduate. <laughs> okay, okay. I went to Berkeley. <laughs> a lot of us go there for years and years and years, and we get by just fine without the degree. Right. And you obviously and studied geophysics many was, Geophysics was definitely my major. Okay. There, there is one course that I did not finish, and that's why I don't have a degree. But I'm not using geophysics. I'm using the, the math. But you obviously studied computer science. Lots of computer science. And other <coughs> things that interested you. You know, the, the, and the, the other thing I think, I don't know how it is today, but when we were going to school, you were almost never told that you were dumb. You were never told you were dumb. And if you couldn't figure something out, all you had to do was present yourself to the people who had figured it out, and they would explain it to you. And so every day you would add tools to your wisdom kit, you know, and maybe it's differential equations, and maybe it's thermodynamics, and maybe it's something else. So what I love about that is that that seems to play in exactly to you starting a business and saying, we're going to pick something that we think we're going to enjoy doing. I don't know how to make a sale, but I can figure that right. out. That's exactly the thing. The, the thing about getting out of school, in my opinion, when we got out of school, is it, it was nothing you couldn't do. It was not conceivable that we couldn't figure out how to weld bicycle frames, you know, or drive sewing machine or make sales. And so who did you convince first that you knew how to do this? Who was your first Papa customer? Callahan. 
at a Coronado 25. We, we uh, here in the estuary, it, the business startup was actually extra cool. We rented a small space inside a great big warehouse, 601 Embarcadero. Okay. And the guy that was running it was a little bit sleazy, but we were able to work out a deal where we would put down pieces of plywood on the floor and we would put down as many pieces of plywood as we needed to do what we had to do. And so our very first, we had got a repair before we got a new sale and it was a jib for a Coronado 25. So we needed maybe three sheets of plywood long four by eight wise and maybe four wide four by eight wise. So we had to pay rent on that many square feet. Oh. <laughs> okay. And the sewing machines were not in pits. They were just sitting on the plywood as a two by four sleepers on the cement. Yeah. Plywood on top of the two by four sleepers. Okay. Okay. And then somebody came in with an Islander 30 main to, to get repaired and it wouldn't fit. So he had to put down more sheets of plywood. More rent. And the next rent check was a little bit bigger. <laughs> and there were no walls around our perimeter. You know, it was uh -huh. just a great big, it was sort of like this, only bigger. Yeah. And eventually, you know, you had to put down two sails on the floor at the same time. Put down more plywood. And then, okay, so we'd be better off with recessed sewing machines. So we got four by fours and two by fours and just jacked the whole floor up. And then it was a raised floor. I love it. But that was, uh, you know, that was very fortuitous. And business took off rather quickly? It, it did. Um, I mean, certainly quickly enough. I, I can remember the first sale that we built, complete sale, was a mainsail for Papa Callahan, who's now dead. His wife is dead, but they had, I don't know, nice Catholic family from Piedmont, maybe five or seven kids. And maybe three or four of them worked for us over the course of time. <laughs> but I can remember putting the sail together and just going out to go sailing and putting it up and just being sure it was going to blow up. I mean, why wouldn't it blow up? We have no idea. And if you, I mean, if you repair a sail and you look closely at it, uh -huh. you have an idea. Right. Right. I mean, and it's, it is all figure outable. Yeah. I mean, where the loads are high, the sail needs to be thick. Yeah. If the sail's not going to stretch, you need the cloth needs some physical characteristics. And so you just start chasing all that stuff around. But I, I clearly remember how upset my stomach was, yeah. you know, and we went sailing for three or four hours out in the estuary and, you know, eight or nine knots of breeze. It never blew up. And it worked for years. <laughs> the <laughs> shape's got wonderful. what an essential part is, is that if you if you make something and you look at it, you have to have the balls to say, that's okay, but that's not great. Mm -hmm. And you can take it apart and put it back together again. In those days, sales were just cross-cut Dacron panels, very simple. <clears throat> so you could open up some of the seams and change the shape that joins one panel to the next, put it back together again, go sailing again. And that was, I mean, that's learning, straight up learning. Yeah. I mean, that's being on fire. Now you did get into sailing. Got into, seriously, got into sailing. And you not only got into it, but I assume you enjoy it. Yeah, well, I, I, uh, <laughs> do I enjoy sailing? I love <laughs> racing. Okay. I really, really enjoy racing. Um, and I Is almost, that a competitive streak? Yeah, yeah. Um, when you get good at something, I think it's, for me, it's sort of fairly natural to say, well, 
how the hell good am I? Yeah. Right? And yeah. and everybody's good compared to somebody else, but there's always somebody else that's way the hell better than you are. I mean, I've been racing very seriously for 47 years and 46 years. And before I die, I really want to get good at this. You know, I'd really like to be good. And there are plenty of people in the Bay Area that are way better than I am. And every time I go racing, I mean, you have to pay a lot of attention. You have to remember what happens when. Which way did somebody go that worked better than you? Which way did you go that worked better than them? A lot of three-dimensional mapping about, you know, can you run back through the race course where everybody went? And that's how you learn stuff. And you've raced up and down the coast. You've raced to Hawaii. You've raced to Mexico. I think 13 or 14 trips to Hawaii. Wow. Several trips down to Mexico. The Hawaii trips are most are are a huge amount of fun. It's very, very hard um, to do well because the weather plays a big part in what happens. Where is there more wind? Where is there less wind? Generally, the further south you go, the course gets longer. The further north you go, the course gets shorter, but it gets lighter. Hmm. So you're walking on eggshells trying to go, you know, far enough south to get wind, but not so far south that the course becomes too long. What are some of the most memorable races? No, the, the, the most memorable, memorable part, I think, for nearly everybody that does a Hawaii race is to be sure that you go on a year when they schedule it with a full moon. Okay. And then late in the, in the moon cycle, the moon will be setting at like midnight or one or two in the morning. And you're sailing with a spinnaker up, sometimes on the edge of control, sometimes in 15 knots of breeze, which is just life can't get better than that. And you're sailing right straight down the moonbeam. And you can see waves on the left and right, barely outlined because it's just dark. I mean, it's like sailing down a golden carpet. They all get tangled up together. I can't remember which golden carpet goes with which race. But to do that race on a moonless year... It seems stupid. They scheduled it wrong. <laughs> but, but those are great. I mean, in, in some races are very, very challenging, and challenging is always fun. A lot of the Hawaii races, I've sailed with some of the same people several times, and so, I mean, we're very good, and now we're very old friends, and now we're actually old. And just spending time with those people in a single-purpose environment. Mm -hmm. You sleep, you eat. You sail the boat. You hardly ever read. You know, there's just, it, it turns out that 24 hours a day, there's barely enough time to do those three jobs. And so the more time, if you have extra time, sleep with it. You know, and the eating goes sometimes pretty damn fast. Yeah. And the interesting thing about sailing to Hawaii in any long race is that in the last 24, 48 hours, it gets very, very tricky because there's land up in front of you and the land changes which way the wind blows. Mm. So the wind is changing direction and you need to make decisions that are very challenging if you haven't had sleep. Right. So the, the, the people who can set up a watch system where the crew is rested when they get to Kaneohe generally is a crew that can do pretty damn well the last two days. How much of it is the dynamic between the crew? It's huge. Yeah. It's huge. I mean, you, you just can't, you know, round numbers, it's 10 days on a fast boat and 14 days on a slow boat. And <clears throat> there's no 
sane reason to spend 14 days with people that you don't want to be with. Yeah. You know, and it's and that's uh, that was hard to sort out in the beginning, and then it gets easier as you get older to sort that out, because you can explain to the boat owner that you know maybe I've never done Pacific Cup before. I want to buy two new spinnakers, and I want you to go and I want to win this race. <laughs> you can say, well, look, you're going to be sailing against people who've done it 15 times. Yeah. And if you think you can beat them. More power to you, and maybe you can be so lucky that you can beat them. But when you sit down in a closet at home with a cold beer and the door is closed, you need to know you have to go for fun. You can have fun, but you probably can't win on your first try. Hardly anybody wins on their first try. You know, and a lot of the people historically that sail Pacific Cup, I mean, that's their, they haven't sailed overnight yet. How do you, how do you ride that line? Of competitiveness versus fun. You, you, you just decide when, where you go and where you don't go, who you go with and who you don't go okay. with. So that's no, that, that maybe that used to be a challenge. I guess when you're starting out, you really want to go, and so you will embrace an adverse situation. Yeah. And once you've gone several times, let me spin this the other way around. Somebody invites you to go. All right. Your two first questions, what kind of boat? Mm-hmm. Who's going? And either one of those can be a breaker. You know, it doesn't matter whether they give you new foul weather gear. It doesn't matter if they feed you steak every night. Nothing matters if the whole crew is green, haven't gone before. You, you have to embrace them and tell them you're proud of what they're doing and you're not going. <laughs> and yeah, and, and right, all that's true. true. Yeah. You know, everybody goes their first time. Right, yeah. You know, I can remember my first time. Yeah. And and I didn't know a damn thing. And and it's okay. So you just keep going. Right. And if you if you I mean the one of the best things I think about racing sailboats is it is a game where at the age of 70 I got to know I don't know 12, 1947 is when I'm born. So I might be 72, I don't know, something like that. <laughs> you can compete against people that are 30. Right. You know, you can beat people that are 30. Sailing has this wonderful rule that's called old age and treachery will womp youth and inexperience every day. And we got that, old age and treachery. So what boats do you sail on these days? We have an Express 37 uh, partnership between myself and Bill Bridge. Bill Bridge was one of my college roommates at Berkeley. And so we're clearly still good friends. And uh, Bill Bridge wanted to go racing and was having trouble getting on a boat, and so he talked to Carl Shoemaker when he was still alive and said, Carl, <clears throat> what if you and I bought an Express 37 as a partnership and we'll just race the boat and it'll be our boat? And that seemed like it was a very attractive deal to Carl. So they bought a boat, and the boat was sitting on KKMI's hard. It had blisters, so it was getting dried out. And the blisters, blah, 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 blah. and Carl dies before the boat even gets in the water. Oh. <clears throat> and so now my dear friend Bill, who I plugged into Carl, uh, maybe not singularly, but said, yeah, he would be a great guy to be in a partnership with. And he's, Bill saying, shit, I'm going to have to sell the boat. You know, and I'm, how many miles have I sailed with Carl? Thousands of miles with Carl Shoemaker. <clears throat> so I say, well, uh, yeah, criminy, Bill, uh, if I can 
stand in for Carl. If that's okay with you, that'll be okay with me. And that's, that's where it is. So we've been partners for almost 20 years, I think, now. One of the things I hear you talking about with racing is that you are adamant about learning from each race. Yes. Collecting information. Yes. And we talked about that with sail making as well. Same. And I was introduced to you through your current and tide talk at the oh, Bay good. Model, which I thoroughly enjoyed. But I want to hear a little bit about how you started that, where yeah. that knowledge came <laughs> from. Everything goes back to the beginning. <clears throat> Space Sciences Lab, UC Berkeley, up above Lawrence Hall of Science, on the roof, playing volleyball, looking over the edge. You're looking down on the Berkeley Circle. <clears throat> and one of the things that I, I didn't care about sailing, but you can look out on the bay very often, and there will be wind streaks that are parallel to the Berkeley shore that stack up as you go towards the Golden Gate Bridge. Not that far out, maybe out to the end of the Berkeley Pier. I can make a mental case where the Berkeley Hills are a wall, the breeze is coming in and it's running into the wall, and the breeze sort of stacks up as waves in front of that wall. So it's on the water, then it leaves the water, and goes back down to the water, leaves the water, goes a little higher, comes back down again, then it runs into the hills and it goes over the hills to Orinda. <clears throat> but you could see these bands in the ref difference in reflectivity of the water because of the wind being light in one spot and heavier in other spots. And it's big horizontal bands that run from, you know, Emory Cove all the way up past the racetrack. Clear as can be. Now, that's cool. So what do you do about that? Well, also at Space Sciences was the remote sensing department. And the remote sensing people <laughs> were a bunch of cowboys. These are guys that, uh, they weren't really cowboys. They were mountain men, you know. And they had big, heavy boots and nice, big, Kelty backpacks. And they wanted to have a reason to go out into the forests. So they would put up a satellite and take a picture of something and try to analyze, like, temperatures from the photographs. And then they have to go out in the forest to measure whether the temperatures are right or not. So they were doing, you know, the early, early brown graping stuff of, uh, like, multispectral scanners where you, instead of taking a single exposure, you're uh, running magnetic imaging with different wavelengths, Right? So you can get different temperatures, different infrared reflectivities, all kinds of different things. And they would have a, a photographic library. So talking to one of these guys playing volleyball, pointing out this crazy thing, they said, oh, we've got aerials that, you know, come by the library. And so you go by the library, and says, oh, man, <laughs> there was a time. <laughs> this is going to segue into where the, to answer your question about the, the images that are in that slideshow. Yeah came to me through a fellow named Doug Peary, who worked at the Corps of Engineers in San Francisco. And Doug was in charge of studying sand transport down the coast from Oregon, basically, to National City in San Diego. Okay. So every year, twice, they would hire a U-2 reconnaissance airplane to fly from Oregon to National City. Wow. Somewhere around 60 or 70 or 80,000 feet, photographing the whole way down. Okay. So he could look for sand moving down the coast. And that they were doing a lot of other stuff too. <clears throat> but when he found out I was interested in, after the, you know, you, you carry over this wind thing from playing volleyball and being a computer jock to 
okay, now sailing matters. Um, and why does that talk exist? Why does a yacht club exist? I mean, the yacht club exists so you can have meetings. And if you're going to have a meeting, nobody wants to go unless there's something worth looking at. Uh-huh. So they ask people to come and do presentations. And if you have a sailmaker come talk about sail trim, I mean, it's, they're so biased. You know, all the sails are terrible except theirs. It turns out to not be true. <clears throat> but there are very few sailmakers or anybody else who, who has a talk that has big wisdom transfer, like that tides and currents talk. Yeah. Right? And so Doug Perry said, you know, this is the library of our images, and, and this is a light table, and this is a binocular microscope, and you can bring a sandwich over, and you can stay all day. Don't drip your sandwiches on the light table, and don't put grease on the microscope knobs, and just have at it. And those images are color positive transparencies. That's what a Kodachrome slide is, right? The images are nine inches wide. The roll is nine inches wide. The original, the oldest, oldest images are like nine by 10. Then they grew to be nine by 12, nine by 15, 19, 18, nine by 18 inches. And they got out to be nine by 24 in inches wide as they changed the cameras and got fancier and fancier lenses. You can see through the microscope, looking at Chrissy Field, uh, the parking lot at the Marina Green, whether a car door is open or closed from 70,000 feet. Wow. Staggering. Wow. And what I loved about your talk is that you went from those images to then standing basically on top of the bay model with that same aerial view. Right. And showing us all how it worked in right. practice. Right. How did that <coughs> idea come the, to you? The bay model people have been wonderfully tolerant and patient with me because my, when you go in there and the first question is, is it working? I mean, you can hear noise, but you sure. don't know. I mean, you can look at it and it's very hard to tell if the water is even moving or not. Yeah. And so they say, well, you know, you can put dye in the water. So they have these little squeeze bottles with a nipple on it. And you can squirt some dye on over by Chrissy Field. And if it's ebbing, you'll see the dye go out the gate. Well, fine. You know, how often can we put the dye in? Somebody pointed out to me that if you put ground pepper on the water, it creates a meniscus under it, and it floats on top of a little volcano. And when the, the water is standing proud like that, the sides of the little volcano reflect light off of all the inside lights. So you can actually, when you put the ground pepper on it, you can see it move around. It goes off with the water, but you just keep putting more and more pepper on there. And they've never told me that there's too much pepper. <laughs> um, the part that I think is sort of the most beneficial is that we've been able to take in sailboard masts and uh -huh. every foot along the mast, we tape on maybe uh, 12 inches of sewing thread and then a floating styrofoam disc. And we cantilever the sailboard mast eight inches above the water out across the water so that every foot you have a current indicator, but it holds still. When the, when the, when the current is flooding, all those discs are on the Berkeley side of the mast, and when it's ebbing, they all flip around to the Golden Gate side of the mast. And, the, and you can put them all over the place. You can put them outside the Golden Gate Bridge. You can put them 
you know, between Rincon Point and Treasure Island, um, those things turn out to, I think, be sort of the most valuable because you can see multiple current cycles and watch how the current changes. The, one of the semi-big, big rules is that current always changes on the beach first. This happens both on the San Francisco beach and on the Marin beach. So at maximum flood, if you look carefully, the current is just starting to go out right along the city front beach. That happens in the Rio Bay, and if you look carefully enough at the model, same things happen at the model. I remember you pointing out those countercurrents. Right, and that's the, the, the value of studying tidal currents is countercurrents. Yeah. When you're trying to go the same way the current is, the problem's quite simple. When you're trying to go the other way, now the problem is hard. Now the problem is hard. And the answer might be counterintuitive. If you go on Sunday afternoon at, say, 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and you drive up into the Marin Netherlands with a bottle of wine and a baguette and some cheese on a day when it's ebbing, and you look at boats coming in from the ocean, they'll be sailing wing and wing, sailing against the current and not getting very far. <clears throat> and, you know, after an hour or so, you'll see them roll up the jib, which must mean they've turned on the motor, and they're still not getting very far. And then they're taking down the main, and the throttle is full up, and they're still not getting very far. In that same two hours of time, somebody can come around, say, Point Bonita, and into the very first cove on the headland side, sail right around the cove and up to the next point, and then back into the next cove, and they can get up to the Golden Gate Bridge. They go somewhere, because there's the current on the edges is running the exact opposite way. Now, how often in a race do you find your knowledge of the bay currents and tides working out? And how often do you find yourself getting frustrated saying, this isn't what's supposed to be happening? Well, yeah. <laughs> it's okay when it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. But even then, the game is to figure out what's causing it to do this. Yeah. Right? It's just the same puzzle expressed differently. You know, a gotcha. I don't know. In the last several years, the St. Francis Big Boat Series They've been trying to be able to start the races earlier. So one of the starting lines is just west of Alcatraz, and they put a weather mark straight upwind from there, two-thirds of the way to the Golden Gate Bridge. When you're sailing that beat, it is horrifying to me that local knowledge will do you no damn good <laughs> because you can't get to either side. Ah. If you don't have good boat speed going straight upwind, you are going to suffer. Yeah. Right? You can't outsmart anybody. <laughs> now, it's just a sailboat race. I always feel better when it's harder than that, when you can use old age and treachery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so another project that you're involved in is the, uh, that you started, yes. is the Alameda Community Sailing Center. Right. When did that start, and what's the idea behind <clears throat> it? We're now eight years old. We've been incorporated for eight years. <laughs> Everything I do seems to start with a frustration. I think that little kids should be exposed to sailing. And being exposed to sailing, in my opinion, isn't giving them a ride on a square rigger. It's putting them on a boat that's as small as they are and that they are literally the captain, right? If they push the tiller one way, the boat's going to turn the other way. If they pull in the main sheet, the boat's going to tip over, yeah. right? I mean, I want them to learn what happens when you sit someplace different. Yeah. You know, if sit in the back, what happens? In the front, what happens? So I thought, well, heck, this is fine. 
we know where the kids are. They're in junior high school. <clears throat> so we just pick up the kids and we take them to some yacht club. And we put the kids in the yacht club's junior boats and we let them go sailing. Well, that is a huge failure because from the school's perspective, the kids are not learning anything if they're not in class in school. From the parents' perspective, if the bus gets in a wreck and kills the kids, they'll kill you. From the yacht club's perspective, their insurance doesn't cover non-yacht club members sailing their boats. Right. So it's just like a huge, utter, complete disconnect. Okay, no problem. I got a solution for that. We got some old, old El Toros from Redwood City. And we built a four-wheeled cart. And the two front wheels are stolen off of some poor guy's wheelchair. Okay, and they're full-size wheelchair wheels. Spin real, real nice. Yeah. The back end of the cart, port and starboard wheels, are the front end off of like an eight-year-old kid's bicycle. Okay. So we bought a couple of junker bikes, and we just sawed off the tubes, and we turned the frame so that it would work well, and we linked the tiller to the handlebars. So when you move the tiller one way, the wheel steer one way. So you're literally steering the cart using the tiller with wheels in the back. I was very, very excited how cool that was until you found out that when you turned the boat, it slowed way, way down because we didn't know what Ackerman steering was. And Ackerman steering reflects the fact that when the wheels are going around a corner, the radius that each one of the wheels turns around is different, and the wheels should not be parallel. Ah. There has to be a funny linkage in there. So we're talking about land sailing here. This is land sailing. Yep, okay. we're going to get back to this. So, okay. so if you can't take the kids to the yacht club, why don't we build a yacht that we can take to, that the, we kids. Can take to the kids? Ah. Right? It's, fuck, what took you so long to figure this out? So we get this thing built up, and we start sailing it around, and it turns out that in maybe 15 knots of breeze, this thing probably goes 20 miles an hour. <laughs> this is a totally unreasonable place to put little kids. We took several of our neighbor kids out sailing with the boat, and if you tell them to ease the main sheet, they will ease the main sheet, but the hand that was on the tiller will stay right where it was. And if you tell them to push the tiller away, they'll push the tiller away, but the main sheet will not get trimmed. They are <laughs> struggling to do single processes. Right. Right? And sailing requires rubbing. Maybe you have to spit out your gum, but you do have to rub your stomach and pat your head. Right? And so the, you couldn't trust the kids to do the things you needed to do, and the thing starts going too fast. Yeah. So solution one was, well, shit, let's just put a brake on this thing. Huh. So there's a centerboard trunk for the El Toro. Mm -hmm. We put a cast iron pipe across the bottom and basically a Flintstone-style brake. So when you pull a string, it lifts the front end of the board up, puts the back end of the board down on the ground, and goes along the so it slows down. Sparks and all. But <laughs> kids can't do that and steer. Yeah. You know, it's tough. Yeah. That whole idea, great idea, good for adults take it to Burning Man, go blowing around the desert, put, you know, big cooler of beer and have fun. 
But not for little kids. Yeah. Not for little kids. You can do it in Vegas, uh, at a dry lake bed out near Vegas. I uh, interviewed yes, one. Right. <laughs> well, somebody you, who has a business. You should be able to do it at Alameda Naval <coughs> Air Station because it's really big and yeah. perfectly flat. It's got great True. breeze, but they have fun police. Mm. And if you're having fun, they come by and say, hey, you can't do that here. You have to stop. But so. we sometimes do it when they're not looking. <laughs> So that so two failures, right? Right. So okay. So now, well, how do we solve this damn problem? Well, you solve the problem the way everybody else does, which is to start a program where you find a way to get some real estate close to the water, get some boats, put them in the real estate. What do we need? We need wetsuits. We need life jackets. We need safety boats, and you just start doing this business list of what do you need to do to not hurt anybody. And let the kids just start laughing and having fun. And we started having meetings for a community sailing center here. And we had 15 to 25 people show up. And uh, it was very warmly embraced, particularly when we were sitting around, drawn on a whiteboard, laughing about how it could go. And we finally got to the point where we said, okay, we're either going to stop talking about it or we're going to do it. Because, and what doing it means is that we're going to have parents give us money and we're going to give the kids lessons. Uh-huh. And now it's a real job, right? This isn't like going to a meeting on the second Tuesday of the month. This is like we've made a deal and we have to hold up our end of the bargain. Right. And a third of the people decided the meetings weren't that much fun anymore. <laughs> but it got off the ground but it got off the ground and and we um we been able to grow you know a little bit every year and it is just going incredibly incredibly well well and you just got named to be a partner with u.s sailing yes yeah one of three picked in the bay three in the bay area it's called the siebel sailors program and they basically have given us six brand new rs fivas which are a wonderful boat for junior high school age kids, a main, a jib, and a spinnaker. I took a little girl out sailing. Actually, she took me out sailing on one of these Fevas when they were brand new, and we were sailing around with a main and jib, and I said, you want to put a spinnaker up? She said, sure, what's that? So we put the spinnaker up, and we're sort of, it's very, very light, so we're just reaching back and forth, and, and she's laughing, and we're having a great time, and she says, what's that sail called again? That's really fun. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Well, this has been a fabulous conversation. I want to ask you what we haven't touched on that you'd want to talk about. I talked already about how good I thought college was for me. Um, And I'm going to lament now that college for recent kids has focused on money rather than anything else. Mm. And... Pineapple Sales is one of maybe two or three businesses in the Bay Area that literally make sales. I mean, rolls of cloth come in through the roll-up door. They go upstairs to the plotter. They get cut out. They get sewn together downstairs. Reinforcements, bat pockets that they put on, and an all-done sale goes out the front door. When we were five years old, I'll bet they were 15 businesses essentially the same as this with people making sales for sailboats Hmm. and now the i mean the biggest name sail makers you can think of they don't make sales here the 
problem, I think, is is that holding companies are buying manufacturing businesses, and then they study how to make the business more profitable. Yeah. And one of the ways to do that is don't pay rent on this much space. Right? I mean, why would you want to own a factory when you can sub that whole job out? Right. Well, let's say you sub it out to China. Now let's say along comes Nuvo coronavirus. coronavirus yeah. Right? Nothing's going into China. Nothing's coming out of China. You can redo your manufacturing, but that'll take you a year. You know, and and I don't. It's um. I don't know whose fault it is. I mean, if 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 you own something, and your goal is to sell at the highest possible price, then I guess you've backed yourself into. You know, companies where that's their focus to make a lot of money. Yeah, we've found that it's very very easy to be big. It is very hard to be profitable. I wish that there were more people actually making stuff. Yeah. And and it and it may turn out, well, I don't know. I guess we're all going to wish that the world was like it was when we were 18. Right? Cuz that probably was the good old days and it's never going to be my 18 ever ever again. Right. <clears throat> but this has been able, I mean, this what we started has made my entire life possible for 46 years. I mean, it's paid for the house, it's bought the cars, it's bought the food. You know, we don't get to go on vacations very much, but that's okay with me because, I mean, if we go, my version of a vacation would be like going to see the Anastasi in Colorado or Utah. I don't need to go to Europe. You know, there's so many things to see right here. And it sounds like it's also fostered friendships. Huge. Through, through the people that you've met. Huge. Huge. Some of the our neighbors basically are saying, well, where are you going to go when you retire? And I'm not going anywhere. I mean, we've, we are fully entrenched and very, very happy to be where we are. And what's the money for? I don't need a lot. You need to be able to eat and sleep and race your boat, right? Those three things. <laughs> eat, sleep, <laughs> but, and But I, I just, I, I don't know. I, I, I wish that money wasn't the most important thing in the world. It's not the most important thing right. in the world. You wish more it's people realized so that. It's so easy to get sidetracked to thinking that it is the most important thing in the yeah. world. And it, it's not. I mean, everybody that's had a baby knows there's something more important than money for at least a while. And then when the kids got to go to college, you say, well, shit, where are we going to get the money? But yeah, life's tough. <laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a real pleasure. Most welcome. I've enjoyed it immensely. That wraps up this week's episode. Thanks again for listening. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of Out the Gate. Until next week, smooth sailing and stay safe, be well.